touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Everyone and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland and I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And we're going to conclude our two-part episode series, I guess. It's a series. It's a it's a series of two. A series of two on Fairchild Semiconductor. All right, so in our previous episode we talked about the founding of the company and why it was important, the transistor being the big thing and uh its role. Basically, a lot of the stuff that Fairchild made was uh, they were components that would go into other people's products. So it's not necessarily the stuff that you or I would buy. Yeah, it's not usually straight to consumer unless you happen to be building your own big fancy computers in 1975. Which some people were. Certainly. You know, but for most of us, we are buying the stuff that Fairchild Semiconductors would be inside already. But anyway, let's get back to what they were doing. So we're getting into this era now where we're talking about... uh Semiconductor chips that, whether they were specific tiny little components or they were full microprocessors, were getting tiny, tiny, tiny elements on smaller and smaller scales. And as we made smaller components, it meant that it became much more important to control the environment within which these components were built, right? Right. So if I am making a chip today, you know, I'm talking about creating a chip that has components that are on the nanoscale. They're maybe maybe a couple dozen uh, nanometers wide. So if, for example, a speck of dust, which is pretty small, yeah. gets onto it, uh, it's bad times. Yeah, no, you're ruining an entire, possibly multiple microprocessors, you know, depending upon where that moat of dust falls. Because while a moat of dust to us is very, very tiny... Compared to the nanoscale, that thing's an enormous asteroid heading for Earth that's going to wipe out all life, right? All all technological semiconductor life. You yes. have to get a nano-sized Bruce Willis oh, no. to drill a hole and put a nano-sized nuclear weapon in there to destroy it. Or you can build what's called a clean room. So clean rooms are, you know, they, they are what they sound like. Clean rooms are designed to have... As few contaminants as possible. Ideally, you got no contaminants in there. You have people wearing those crazy suits that look like hazmat suits. It's designed to cut down on any sort of fibers or dust that you could give off, um, including things like dead skin cells, which creates a lot of dust, people. Uh, You also have really advanced uh, filtration systems that filter the air, that, that circulate the air multiple times within the span of an hour and really try to filter out any kind of particulates that could cause problems during the manufacturing process. Mm-hmm. And this is part of part of the process of manufacturing that Fairchild was was instrumental in developing. Right, because again, their work really meant that the whole industry was being pushed forward. You get at this time in, in Fairchild's history, we're talking about the mid seventies right now. Uh, there were a lot of companies that were in the semiconductor business. Now, some of them had already kind of split directly from Fairchild, and and a few had crashed and burned. Sure, uh, you know we had Motorola's semiconductor industry didn't last for much longer. Uh, there were After, other right being yeah. cannibalized by Fairchild. Right, to be fair. Yeah, there were other companies that also worked in semiconductors and then decided that that business was not profitable for them and they got mm-hmm. out. But you still had big companies like Texas Instruments out there. You had Intel that was was really starting to... Was up to, and coming, right. Um, um, Fair, Fairchild, meanwhile, was having a little bit of, of rocky times around around that period. They, yeah. had, they had lost some of their upper management. There had been a bunch of layoffs. Right. So they were looking to try and maybe strike out there and do something really, really 
innovative and they did and it didn't work. It was it was 1976 and uh, the Fairchild Video Entertainment System. Yes. Or VES. And later later called the Channel F. Right. It launched. This this was the first um, programmable cartridge based video game system. Right. Yeah, everything that had come before it was essentially a hardwired system, meaning that whatever games were on the system, that was it. Mm-hmm. That's all the games you got to play because they were hardwired. You could not plop a cartridge out and put like a new a game Pong in. Like Pong or something. Exactly. Pong. I had a game of Pong where there were eight different versions of Pong. It was all essentially the same game, just slightly, so slightly different that it was almost like I cannot tell what, how tennis and table tennis are different. Uh, anyway, this was a different approach. It was creating the first cartridge-based ROMs where you could have a, a game on a cartridge and you could pull it out and put in a different game and have a completely new experience. And it, it was the first one. Yeah, totally predated the Atari. Yeah, so here we go. Why isn't it not a, why is it not a huge success? Well, they didn't have that much support. They only ever made, I think, 26 games for the thing. And it was probably a little too early. I mean, it just it, it came yeah. out. It came out. It was a little half baked, I guess, compared to some of the later systems, and so it never got the traction that other systems got. By the way, you can still find Fairchild Video Entertainment systems on things like Craigslist. Uh, there are a few museums that have them. When I was at uh, E3 this past year in 2013, was when we're recording this. When I was at E3, they had a video game um, uh, history section of one of the show floor, uh, part of the show floor, and they had a Fairchild. Uh, inter- entertainment system there. Uh, not that I played it. Uh, I was too busy playing uh, Rampage. But anyway, uh, yeah, was not a big success for Fairchild. It was one of their rare attempts to create something specifically for consumers, consumers. not the enterprise mm-hmm. or not for some other manufacturer. Uh, moving ahead, 1979, another big year for Fairchild. That's when an oil field services and electronics company called Schlumberger Limited... I just love that name. Schlumberger came in and uh, met up with Fairchild Camera and Instrumentation Company and said, uh, hey, this uh, semiconductor business, you got, you know, the one that's not working so well. We'd like to take that off your hands well, for, well, for 400 million. Yeah, so between 400 and 450 million, depending upon which way you read the reports. But yeah. A significant, a significant investment. They said, we'll, we'll buy this for around $400 million in 1979. And so they bought the company and hardly anything happened at first. Like they, they bought it and it just kind of, you know, kept chugging along, but there wasn't any, everyone was hoping for something big. Yeah. Some big change. So some people started to call the new company something else besides Fairchild. Since the parent company was Schlumberger, they called it Slumber child. Aww. Cause it was snoozing. So the parent company eliminated many compensation and benefits packages that Fairchild had established over the course of its existence. Uh, which so, meant that several key employees wound up leaving. Yeah. Yeah. When you tell your employees, yeah, you know this bonus program you guys have? That's not really what we do, so we're cutting it. That does not help employee re- morale. I know that this is ground-shaking news here, that someone, oh, you mean eliminating a program makes people upset? Yeah, well, Schlumberger found that out, uh, and they saw more talented people leave the company. Now, keep in mind, at this point, by the time Schlumberger came in, there were none of the original uh, uh, members of the Fair Children at 
Fairchild anymore. They had all gone off to, in fact, Gordon Moore and Robert Noyce were two of the last ones to leave. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So they had all gone off to either work for or found their own companies. But even now, with the second round, like the Hogan's Heroes era, those guys were starting to leave too. Uh, 1985, so we're skipping ahead quite a bit. But this is when Fairchild introduced something interesting. Now, keep in mind, even though the company was having trouble, they were still introducing new innovative stuff in the world of electronic components. And in fact, uh, we haven't touched on a lot of them because frankly, you know, it would be like they came out with this other transistor and, you know, it would mean nothing to you. Right, right. I I mean, basically, it's all just like getting more stuff onto smaller chips and making it without making it more power hungry. Exactly. You just summed it all up, Lauren. That really is what it was all about. And in fact, in 1985, they introduced the Fairchild Advanced CMOS technology. Uh, CMOS stands for a complementary metal oxide semiconductor. And, uh, they, the short version of this, the acronym in this case is FACT, F-A-C-T. And, uh, this is something that's used in microprocessors, microcontrollers, other digital logic circuits. And it was meant to, to increase processing speed, but keeping that power consumption level. And it performed really well against other logic approaches and what was becoming a very crowded semiconductor market. Now, on the executive front, Schlumberger decided to bring in someone from Texas Instruments. In fact, many people from Texas Instruments. In fact, so many people from Texas Instruments. Essentially, they were doing the same sort of thing at at Texas Instruments as what Fairchild had done to Motorola a few years ago. They brought in so many managers and executives that some people in the industry who we've already learned were really hilarious calling it Slumberchild earlier decided it's no longer Slumberchild. Now they're calling it Texas Instruments West Ouch. or TI West. Yeah. That, that they had taken so many people that really they were just another branch of Texas Instruments at that point. In 86, they created the first CMOS non-volatile electrically erasable memory, which sounds really complicated, but it's actually a pretty simple concept. It, it basically just means that that the computer's memory can retain information even when the power has been shut off. Yep, that's what non-volatile means. It means that once, and this is really important, obviously, for things like personal computers, oh, where sure. you need that read-only memory to always have that specific information. The way you retain that specific information is you create this non-volatile, electrically erasable memory. Now, electrically erasable does mean that you can wipe out the memory that's on that particular microprocessor, but you do so at a higher voltage than what would typically be produced in, say, a computer. So in other words, I can use my computer all the time and not worry that the ROM information is going to get wiped out. Also, I'm not going to change that. It's read only. It's designed to be there and stay there and keep it stable so that no matter what else I do at my computer, that's going to remain the same. Unless... I were to remove it and subject it to higher voltages, in which case I could erase what was on there and then program it anew and then put it in there. And then it would have a new type of read only memory that would work or not work, uh, despite whether or not there was electricity running through my machine. So very important in the development of computers, obviously. Um, and so there was a, a good a good development at Fairchild. On the management front, things were still not working so well. Uh, yeah, this brings us to, to uh, 1987, which yeah. was when um, Schlumberger tried to sell Fairchild. But uh, I, I think they were, they, they were blocked by the government, right? Yeah, I was trying to sell them to uh, Fujitsu Limited, a, a Japanese company. And the United States government blocked that, that, that acquisition, essentially, which 
can sometimes happen. That's when you hear about these really big, big, big corporate deals, how the government can get involved and either approve or deny. This was a denial. The U.S. government said, you know, you do not sell Fairchild off to a Japanese company. Mm -hmm. So instead, they ended up selling it to another uh, American company called National Semiconductor Corporation. For only $122 million, um, which uh, uh, estimates have said that Schlumberger invested like like $1.5 billion in the company during the short period that it was was its owner. Right, right. So Schlumberger bought the company for between $400-450 million had invested about $1.5 billion, sold it for $122 million, making this one of the biggest busts in technology history. You know, we've talked about some of the other ones, like some deals that seemed like they were good ideas at the time and then turned out to be a really bad idea, like, you know, purchasing MySpace for hundreds of millions of dollars only to find out later that fa- Facebook was the winner. Yeah. yeah. Same sort of thing here. Um, you know, Schlumberger bought the company and then just really, depending upon whom you ask, really, it seems like they, most people say they just didn't know what to do with it. They just mm-hmm. didn't know how to manage it properly. So it was handed off to National Semiconductor Corporation, which, by the way, was founded by lots of different folks, including some people who had worked for Fairchild way back in the day. So, um, yeah, big bad news for Schlumberger. Anyway, National Semiconductor had been founded in 1959. Uh, some of them were some of the founders were employees who had worked at semiconductor division uh, of the Sperry Rand Corporation. Uh, now, s- parts of Sperry Rand are part of Unisys and some are part of Honeywell. So as I say this, you know, these might be company names that you've heard in passing. They have a lot a pretty tight and contentious relationship with each other because there are a lot of talent that have worked at one or the other or it's, sometimes multiple. Within it's a relatively of a small industry considering. Yeah. So anyway, uh, some of them were founders from, uh, from Fairchild and, uh, National Semiconductor would eventually be acquired by a different company in 2011. Another one we've already mentioned. Texas Instruments. Yeah. Now, while Texas Instruments acquired National Semiconductor, they did not acquire Fairchild, but and we'll we will get talk into about that. that after in, in, in a minute. Yes, in a minute. Uh, and so we're going to jump from 87 to 94. Now, the reason why we're making this big jump is that Again, National Semiconductor was trying to see if they could maybe get Fairchild to become uh, a much more profitable, efficient organization. And keeping in mind, Fairchild was still producing stuff. They just the company itself was kind of in a mess. Um, but in, in 94, Fairchild introduced what was called the Crossvolt LCX Low Voltage Logic Series, which had over voltage tolerance but anyway, they also created what was called a plug-and-play ISA bus adapter, which is ISA stands for Industry Standard Architecture. And you might wonder, well, what the heck is a bus? If you aren't familiar with electronics or computers, you might, you know, a bus kind of, you know, why do you, is that what you put the computer on to take home or what it's exactly a, is it? It's a communication system within the computer. Yes. Yeah. A bus is essentially a, a kind of communication system. And it can be inside a computer. It can actually be between computers. Sure. It can, but it allows data to go from one part of a computer or uh, to another or between one computer and another. So really, bus is just this kind of shorthand for saying this is the system that allows data to go from one place to another. Now, we've gotten into some pretty crazy times over at Fairchild. We've got National Semiconductor there. Uh, that has ownership of Fairchild, but things are about to really change for the company. Before we get into that, though, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. 
All right. So Fairchild's been through its share of, of drama, right? Mm-hmm. We had just, just the founding of Fairchild was dramatic. Then we had the, the whole era of the Fairchildren moving away when they became disenchanted with the company. You had the Hogan's Heroes era. You had Schlumberger coming in. You had National Semiconductor. In 1997, something else happens. Right. Uh, that That's 10 years after uh, National Semiconductor came in. Uh, Fairchild Semiconductor was spun off into its own independent company based in South Portland, Maine. Yep. That's why the headquarters are there. Now, keep in mind, Fairchild was originally one of the Silicon Valley uh, mm-hmm. uh, companies. Now it's uh, technically a main company. But it created this, uh, this South Portland, um, uh, facility. facility. Yeah, just a, while a few back. years after mm-hmm. they had, had been founded. And then, uh, it doesn't get acquired, uh, with National Semiconductor in 2011 when Texas Instruments buys National Semiconductor. The reason is because it had been spun off into its own company. However, many of the, the assets that Fairchild Semiconductor had originally owned, like it had fallen under Fairchild Semiconductor, ended up going with National Semiconductor. They ended up taking many of the production facilities that Fairchild had had. Fairchild kept a couple, including the one in Maine and one in Pennsylvania, as I recall. Um, but this opened up a new era for Fairchild to really kind of focus and try and reassert what its corporate identity was and to uh, uh, try and get a leadership role in the industry again. So... They started to make some pretty bold moves, a lot of acquisitions, in fact. In 1999, one of the first ones that they acquired was Samsung's power device division. So this was a division within Samsung itself, obviously uh, not a full company. And that's another interesting thing just about corporations in general is that sometimes you don't get a full acquisition. They just say, hey, this one thing that this you do. This little branch, this little pinky finger. We want here. that. Can yeah. we Can we get that? Which is way more complicated than Monopoly. So until there becomes a like like hostile takeover of the board game, I'm just really not going to understand this. And frankly, all of my real estate information comes from Monopoly, which probably explains a few things. <laughs> but but this 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 was a, a terrific purchase for Fairchild because because uh, Samsung was was creating components that Fairchild was was putting into its own components, and, right? And so. And uh, uh, Kirk, Kirk Pond was the president CEO of Ch- Fairchild at that point, and um, and he said about this purchase, everyone else is saying that there are systems on a chip company. We're not, and we're proud to be a multi market supplier. Yeah, and, and that you know that was kind of their entire strategy at that point. Right. Yeah. They they also wanted to diversify as much as they possibly could, and not they didn't want to be so concentrated on one part of the industry that if something were to happen, let's say that someone was to come up with a uh, a, a, an industry changing discovery that would make certain parts of electronics obsolete. If that's the one thing your company does, you are out of luck. Yeah. So diversification really important. Uh, in 2000, Fairchild launched the Interface and Logic Group, which was a division meant to create hardware for internet and wireless applications. Cause, um, you know, 2000, that's that's not quite a decade into the Internet era for the general public per, public. Yeah. You know, of course, research facilities had been playing with this stuff for years and going na 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 na, except they were typing it and using lots of ASCII art. But the rest of us were largely ignorant of it. Well, 2000, of course, now we're getting the part where this is really starting to become a phenomenon. And Fairchild said, we can't ignore this. We have to make sure we incorporate this. And we might have la- waited too long, in fact. 
And uh, the company also started making more acquisitions. They acquired a company called QT Optoelectronics. They also acquired Kota Microcircuits. And they also acquired the power management division from Microlinear. And uh, so this is, you know, another example of how they were really trying to be bold and, and to, to diversify as much as possible. They launched something called the MOSFET BGA package. And now I'm going to explain what that is. <laughs> so MOSFET stands for M-O-S-F-E-T. It stands for Metal Oxide Semiconductor Field Effect Transistor. So doesn't that clear it all up? And BGA stands for Ball Grid Array. Now, what a Ball Grid Array is essentially a different way of creating those little interconnection pins that you use to plug various electronic components into stuff. Now, the Ball Grid Array allowed you to create more of those interconnections to create greater throughput, right? So you're, you're increasing the processing power of various components by giving more connections between that and the other elements that are in whatever you're talking about, whether it's, you know, a mobile phone or a computer or whatever. Right. And, and this is one of those, yeah, one of those miniaturization, uh, techniques. Right. That, that has, that, that basically has helped make mobile phones possible. Yeah. The whole more processing power, less power consumption. That's really what we're going at here. Mm-hmm. So again, they're still showing that they're very innovative in that space. Now, in 2005, they introduced a chip that helped reduce, uh, well, it was signal line reduction for mobile handsets. And again, it was one of those things that makes mobile handsets much more, uh, much more powerful and much more useful in the hands of consumers. Uh, it also consumed very little power. It was a very small and very light chip, which made it ideal for mobile use. Because obviously, the bigger and heavier it is, the less likely it's going to be a useful component for something where you're carrying it around with you all the time. And that's also when the um, Fairchild got a new CEO, uh, who is now the the current CEO, Mark Thompson. He becomes CEO, and he had previously been executive vice president of manufacturing and technology uh, uh, over at uh, Fairchild. So they had promoted him from within. But before that, he had also been an executive at Tyco Electronics and, and also Raychem Electronics, as well as, I want to say it was Big Bear, but I don't have it in my notes. But I, as I recall, that's also who he was with. So he had a long uh, history of working in the industry before he even joined Fairchild. But he joined Fairchild as an executive and was promoted it to the role of CEO in 2005. Uh, 2007, that's when the company celebrated 50 years of being a company. They had been founded in 1957 and so there was a three-day celebration held at the Computer History Museum. And, and I think uh, like like 2,000 um, fair children showed, showed up. up. Yeah. So people from the very earliest days of Fairchild ended up showing up at this. And it was really a celebration of the company. People had panels and talked about what it was like in those early days. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about the Computer History Museum because uh, uh, they have a really some cool exhibits or at least some cool archives of stuff that came from Fairchild. Now, in 2008, CEO Mark Thompson also became the chairman. So he's chairman and CEO at that point. Uh, but that was also the year that the company announced they were going to make a 12% cut in workforce, which was around 1,100 jobs. So not all good news for the company. And uh, in fact, in 2009, Fairchild announced plans to close the production facility they had in Pennsylvania, which would eliminate a further 200 jobs. Uh, but then in 2011, they reversed that decision um, and began actually hiring yeah. instead. Yeah. Within the course of the, the couple of years when they had announced it and when they were actually planning on shutting it down, 
uh, fortunes had changed a bit for the company, and they were able to reverse the decision, which came as a great relief uh, for that community in Pennsylvania. Uh, in 2012, the Computer History Museum accepted a donation from another company. Uh, they, they got a donation of 1,300 patent and laboratory notebooks written by employees of Fairchild Semiconductor, but the donation didn't come from Fairchild Semiconductor. It came from Texas Instruments. Yeah. Now you're like, what? How did Texas Instruments get them? Okay. So you remember we mentioned National Semiconductor. They had owned Fairchild for a while, right? And then they spun off Fairchild when uh, even, you know, National Semiconductor said, we can't do anything with this company. We're going to spin them off. So National Semiconductor spun them off, but they kept a lot of stuff, including these historic documents, these old archive documents. They, that, they were all from like 1959 to 1973. Right. And they had illustrations, including technical illustrations and some cartoons and stuff in them as well. I've seen some pictures of, of the stuff that was in there. It's really the story of the semiconductor industry in a way, but told in the actual history of innovation. Right. So it's like seeing stuff get invented right in front of your eyes if you're reading through these things. Yeah, it's, it's been called the uh, the founding documents of Silicon Valley. Super cool stuff for a particular subset tiny of subset of nerdery. people. Okay, yeah. I think it's super cool. <laughs> Uh, I also don't get out a lot. But anyway, it's it was donated by Texas Instruments, who, of course, they, that was the company that had acquired National Semiconductor in 2011. Right. Like we said. And yeah. so that was a big uh, a big move there. That was nice. But so, yeah, um, this this more or less brings us up to today ish uh, re- revenue as of 2012 was one point four billion for Fairchild Semiconductor. No small shakes. Yeah. Not too not too shabby. Um, It's a it, it, they're employing about nine thousand people right now. Yep. And again, not necessarily um, for for direct consumer consumption, but uh, but but their products are used in in computers and and industry and uh, electronics, cars, medical devices, mobile devices, network communication. Uh, yeah, I mean it's uh, and if you want to know some of the other companies that were founded by the Fair Children, we talked about uh, two of them already. Intel and National Semiconductor were both founded at least in part by former Fair Children. And also Advanced Micro Devices, or AMD. So I'm sure many of you have heard that company name as well. Um, and one last little interesting note, historical note. So the building that first housed the Fairchild Semiconductor Company back in 1957 was not a garage like like HP and, and An actual Microsoft building. <laughs> and, yeah, but it is a building that has been made... California Historical Landmark Number 1000 in Palo Alto, California. So it is an official historical landmark of California. You can go and I'm sure I think there's a plaque out front that explains what it is. So it's uh, it's got its place in history, at least until the next big earthquake. Because California gets those, right? I've, I've heard about that. Yeah. yeah. I don't know anything about that. We just get tornadoes here, which, by the way, that's enough. That's okay. Yeah, yeah, we're doing fine. Yeah. So anyway, that wraps up our story about Fairchild. It's really an interesting story, I think, mainly because you had so much innovation going on, and there was still like this sort of political drama going on within the company itself. And I have a feeling like the engineers were probably caught in the middle there. They they really wanted to push forward the whole industry and create new devices and, and really discover things. I mean, it seemed to me like the... The joy of just learning how to create new things was a big part of what made them who they were. But because of the way the company was run, it 
didn't always align with that. So, you know, we see that from time to time. It's pretty interesting stuff, I think. If you guys have any suggestions for future topics of tech stuff, whether it's another tech company or some other type of thing, maybe you just always wanted to know how electric toothbrushes work. Let us know. You know, you can write us. Our email address is techstuffatdiscovery.com. Or you can drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle there is techstuffhsw. And Lauren and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 